You're listening to sermons from South Point Fellowship, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpointfellowship.org. Several years ago, when I pastored a church in Fairburn, Georgia, uh, one Sunday we had the opportunity to have a guy named Rick Stanley come to our church. If you don't know who Rick Stanley is, he was, a, he was the stepbrother of Elvis Presley, and he was going to come and talk about Elvis on a Sunday morning. Amen? He was going to mix a little Jesus in there with it, but he was primarily going to talk about Elvis, and, and the place was packed. Everybody wanted to hear about Elvis. What was Elvis like? And I probably the most pressing question was, since Rick actually walked in where Elvis was lying on the floor dead, everybody wanted to know, was Elvis still alive? And many of us have been disappointed ever since that time, hoping that somebody would reveal the truth about Elvis, that he was alive. But somebody who saw Elvis was very important to a lot of people in our culture, so they wanted to come and listen to them. This morning, we're going to begin a journey through a small New Testament epistle. It's First John. It, along with Second John, Third John, the Gospel of John, and the book of Revelation, were written by a very good friend and close follower of Jesus, whose name happened to be John. During Jesus' ministry, he was a young man. Um, he was uh, lived to be an old age. Uh, he was one of the only apostles not to, to be martyred, and he wrote this epistle, 1 John, at a very old age. So he saw Jesus up close and personal. He saw the first generation of Christianity. He survived being boiled in oil, and since they didn't seem to be able to kill him, they exiled him to an island uh, to be held as a prisoner. Tradition tells us that as he was aging, he lost his mobility, and on occasion they would take John and bring him in. He was closely associated with the church at Ephesus and bring John into the church. They would have to carry him in. They would have to sit him down, and John, as he sat before the church at Ephesus, would just say over and over again, love one another, love one another. And I think this morning that we would do well to gather and open a book that was written by John and listen to him. John has seen a lot. John has been through a lot. John knows a lot. And John isn't talking about Elvis, but he is having a lot to say about Jesus this morning. And we need to hear what he has to say. So if you would open your Bibles to 1 John, it's in the latter part of the New Testament, and we're going to be looking at the first four verses this morning. A couple of things about the gospel, or excuse me, the epistle of John, some basic things that we need to understand about the book, some commonalities is this, that there are some things that he wants us to know. In fact, he uses the word know 36 times in this brief epistle. He wants us to be certain. He wants us to be confident about who Jesus is and who we are in Christ and how we must live if we say that we know Christ. Did you hear that? He wants us to know who Jesus is. He wants us to know who we are in Christ, and he wants us to know how we must live if we say we are in Christ. That's critical. He wants us to know. The key verse one commentator has said is, is 1 John chapter 5 and verse number 19. And when you look at that verse, you can see he's using um, these words that we're talking about again. But if you look at 1 John 5, 19, he says, We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. He doesn't want you to wake up every morning thinking the world is a terrible, uh, wicked place. He wants you to wake up every morning understanding that you are in God and what you need to sustain your life in him will not be found in the world. That's what he wants us to understand. And so, so you, you, we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Don't spend your life trying to fill up your soul with what the world offers you as a cheap life depleting substitute. Some other passages that are extremely important. He says it three times at least. This is why I'm writing, but three um, just, you know, highlighted moments in the text. First John chapter one, we'll look at it this morning, verses three and four. He said, I'm, I'm writing to you so that you'll understand 
your, the fellowship that you have with the Father and the fellowship that you will have with each other. And I'm writing you verse 4. Why? Because out of this fellowship, the believer has this fullness of joy, right? I want you to understand this fullness of joy. Secondly, he says, I'm writing to you, chapter 2, verse 1, that you do not sin. But he says, I also want you to know that when you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he says, thirdly, I'm writing to you, chapter 5 and verse number 13, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. He was writing to, he was writing to strengthen the church, probably the seven churches that he wrote to in the book of Revelation. And he's also writing to attack and correct the claims of false teachers, which were extremely prevalent at the time of his writing, a generation into the church. The theme for the text we're going to be looking at this morning is this, fellowship and joy will be powerful and practical realities in the life of the believer. Fellowship and joy will be powerful and practical realities in the life of the believer. Now, those are two words that maybe don't grab you this morning. Fellowship and joy. So you're like, what are we going to do? Go to the fellowship hall and eat homemade desserts when this is over so we can have fellowship? That's not what fellowship is. Lost people can have that kind of fellowship, and they do it often. He's talking about something different. He's also talking about joy. He's talking about these, these two uh, characteristics that should fill the life of the believer and that should fill the life of the church. Fellowship, fellowship, and joy. Let's look at the text and think about fellowship and joy this morning. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. I want to start out by trying to answer this question from the text. Who is Jesus? And there are three things that he tells us from this text about who Jesus is. Jesus is God. Fully God, completely God. Number two, Jesus is man, fully human. Number three, Jesus is life. Let's look at the text. Jesus is God. He starts out, that which was from the beginning, that has echoes of Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God. And John 1-1, in the, you know, in the beginning, going back to the beginning, from the beginning, before the beginning. He's essentially saying that this one that I'm talking about, Jesus Christ, is eternal. And he's saying that I have walked and I have talked and I have gazed upon the eternal one. I walked with Jesus and I watched him heal the sick and I watched him open blind eyes and I watched him call a dead man out of a tomb when the stench of death filled the atmosphere that we were in. I watched Jesus walk up and there was a man who was, had cuts fresh and old that were infected and he was bound with chains and his name was Legion and Jesus transformed that man from the inside out and he wanted to leave after that and go and tell others about Jesus instead of trying to threaten everybody on the countryside. He said, I've seen Jesus calm the sea. I've seen Jesus feed thousands. And so Jesus Christ, is God a very God. He is eternal, and he is eternal life, and he speaks the words of eternal life, and he existed in eternity past when he was with the Father, and now he has come in the flesh, and he has manifested to us. Jesus was God. You say, okay, I believe that. I believe that doctrine. Why are you getting excited about it? I'll tell you in a minute. Secondly, Jesus was man. 
The false teacher said Jesus was a phantom. God did not come in bodily form. Jesus did not come in bodily form. They believed that matter was evil. So how could God, who was good and perfect, come in bodily form? Here's what I want you to understand. How could Jesus die for our sin if he didn't come in bodily form? How could he represent humanity in our fallenness if he didn't come in bodily form? So the, the propositions of the false teachers were uh, essentially an attack on the gospel. So Jesus was not only God, but Jesus was man. He was not a phantom. He was not a ghost. He was not a fairy tale. He was not a figment of someone's imagination. John said, I saw him and I heard him and I touched him. He said, I audibly heard him. I physically saw him. I intently studied him and I tangibly touched him. When he says he touched him, it's reminiscent of John 20, 27, where Jesus is saying, look, come, Thomas, and put your finger, touch my wounds, touch my scars, touch my resurrected body. And he was probably speaking of when he saw Christ in the flesh, he saw him in his resurrected state. John said, I gazed upon Christ. The word gazed means to study carefully so as to interpret or come to an accurate conclusion about. So here I am with Jesus for these three years as a young man, and I just didn't see Jesus walk on the scene and perform a miracle, and all of a sudden I'm, I'm, I'm wowed by him or I'm somehow manipulated by him. He said, no, I, I stepped back and I looked at Jesus and I studied Jesus and I wondered about Jesus and I maybe even doubted if this was the Messiah or not. But as a result of me gazing upon Christ, I came to the conclusion that this man in the flesh was God. So here we have it, Jesus Christ God, a very God, the Son of God, robed in human flesh. Jesus Christ is fully God, and Jesus Christ is fully man. Not only was he eyewitness to his divinity, not only was he eyewitness to the fact that he was God, he was eyewitness to his humanity. He saw Jesus sleep. And if snoring is not sinful, and if you happen to have a spouse that snores, you believe snoring is sinful if you don't snore, right? Amen? Um, sometimes it sounds demonic. Amen? I'm like, what in the world? Um, when I'm watching TV and I hear somebody snoring on TV, I'm wondering what that is. Um, he, saw, he saw Jesus sleep. He saw him eat. He saw Jesus grow weary. He saw Jesus express sorrow. He saw Jesus express joy. He saw Jesus hurt. He saw Jesus bleed. He saw Jesus die. He knew that Jesus was a man. He knew that Jesus was human. He knew that Jesus was God. But then he goes on to tell us in the text that Jesus was life. He was the word of life. He was the logos of life. So here he is telling us that this man that came and lived and died as a human being was the, the logos, the, the word. The, the word is this. It's the fundamental basis for organization and intelligence in the universe, according to the Greeks. If you want to reduce life down to its, its very basis, the very thing, if you could go to the center of life, if you could go to, to the, the cause of it all, if you could go to the energy of it all, if you could go to where everything in this world and in this life, in our existence, sprung up from He's saying that is what the Greeks believed the Logos was. And so, so John is saying Jesus is the Logos. He is the Word. He is this essential thing that everything came together by and everything exists by. You can read about that in, in Colossians chapter 1 and verse number 17. Jesus is, according to what John is saying, as the Logos, the ultimate reason behind all things. So he is God, and he is man, and he is the Logos, and he is the Logos of life, the Logos of eternal life, life that lasts forever, is found in Christ and Christ alone. He is the resurrection and the life, John eleven twenty-five. 25. Now, why is that important? Why should that matter to us this morning? Who is Jesus? Why should that matter to you and why should that matter to me? 
First of all, there were these attacks from the false teachers, and their attacks were not only uh, regarding the nature of Jesus, but their attacks were on the, the, the very atoning work and the possibility of Christ and who he was and what he did being able to pay for the sins of mankind. That was the danger of what the false teachers were saying. Secondly, it is important because what we understand is the love of God for us. Eternal God became accessible to fallen man in the most basic way so that he could walk among us and he could touch us. He could walk up to a leper and touch that leper. He could go among the worst of sinners, the Pharisees, or even the tax collectors, or even go to Zacchaeus' house in physical form. And he could look Zacchaeus in the eye and he said, I'm going to your house today to sit down with you. He could call in human form with his voice, two men in their ears, them to repent and believe. And so it is essential that eternal God become accessible to man. Jesus revealed the Father to humanity. That's why that is important. But it's also important because everything that John is saying about Jesus in these two verses are absolutely essential for us to be saved. We've got to understand and believe these things and understand how they function and work together for salvation to be possible. You see, salvation rests in who Christ is. God the Father will only be satisfied with a perfect sacrifice for the sin of humanity. Everything else has been an imperfect sacrifice. That's why in the Old Testament, they had to sacrifice over and over and over again. You sacrificed enough to cover last week's mess, and now you've got to sacrifice again to cover the next week's mess. So, so those sacrifices were not perfect, but they pointed to the one who was perfect. God the Father will only be satisfied with a perfect sacrifice for the sin of humanity, and there is only one option of perfection. Nothing else is perfect in the universe but God. So God sent his only son for atonement to be effective. The sacrifice had to be perfect. And while God is holy and the one who was offended by our sin and rebellion, and you need to think about that. While God is holy and he is the only one that is offended by our sin and rebellion, he is also the one who paid the price for our sin and his payment for our sin to satisfy his righteousness was his own perfect son. In other words, God had to die in order for God to be satisfied with the sin of mankind. That's why we quote often John three sixteen: for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And there is no other way to not perish. There is no one else who could die for our sin except someone who is perfect in the only one who was perfect is God, and he sent his perfect son to come and die for our sin. And so he's telling us, this man, Jesus Christ, that I looked at, that I studied, that I walked with, that I lived with, he is God. He is God. Jesus Christ is God. I would say this, if you believe the gospel, the next time somebody offends you and you want to hold that over their head, you better be careful. You better be careful because the gospel applied among those of us who believe, who say that we are in fellowship with one another, is that we rest in the fact that the payment that Christ paid for our sin was sufficient so we don't have to walk around with it in a backpack anymore, reminding ourselves of our offense against us or reminding others of their offense against us. Think about it, please. Think about it. There is no way. Someone was sharing this with me. They're, they're in a, a broken relationship with the spouse. They did something to severely offend their spouse. They sinned against their spouse. The spouse says to the one that offended them, I, I, I love you, I love you, and I want to be close to you, but I'm scared you'll humiliate me again. Can I ask you a question? How many times have you humiliated God? How many times have you chosen your sin over him? Y'all with me? How many times have you said, my sin will be better in this moment than my Savior? And how many times did God say, I'll tell you what, if you want your sin, you can have it, 
No, we're in a relationship with him. We're in fellowship with him. And he, and so I told this person, I said, there will be no relationship unless there is a willingness to be offended. I'm not looking, I'm not going and looking to be offended. I'm not encouraging you to offend anybody. I'm not encouraging somebody that has been offensive to somebody. I'm not giving you a right to be offensive, but I'm telling you that the relationship that we have with God is based on the fact that we have offended him and God came and he sent his only perfect son to pay for the offense of those who deserve to be punished, those who had offended him. And it was holy God, Jesus Christ, his son that came and did that. Jesus Christ was God. Secondly, Jesus Christ had to be human. Just like the Passover lamb had done nothing wrong. Go out and find a perfect lamb. Bring it in. Feed it. Take care of it. It becomes like a pet. Just like the Passover lamb had done nothing wrong, had nothing to do with the sin. They're going to go out and they're going to kill the Passover lamb. Why? Because the Passover lamb represents the family's sin. The, the sacrifice, the offering represents us and you kill the Passover lamb, you put the blood of the lamb. Nobody in the family had their blood on the doorpost. A representative of the family was killed in their place and its blood was put on the doorpost. Jesus Christ had to be fully human so that he could represent us as sinful human beings so that our sin could be put on him so that the wrath of God could be poured out on him. And when he was punished for our sin with his death and because he was perfect and fully God, our sin debt was fully paid. That's the point that he's getting to this morning. He was the perfect God man. He was perfect man and he was Perfectly human, fully human. God, in one great action of mercy and love, killed his son when he should have killed us. And because his son was perfect, sin's debt was satisfied, death was defeated, and God's son was resurrected. And if we believe in his perfect life because he was God and his substitutionary death because he was man, and if we believe that his death satisfied God's requirements for sin and Christ was resurrected victorious over sin, then we too can have forgiveness and resurrection and the glorious hope of eternal life. That's why John wrote what he wrote. He is God. He is man. He is the word. He is life. Secondly, the text tells us what he has done. We see it in verse number three. It says, that which we have seen and heard and proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. What did he do? Here's what he did. Number one, Jesus Christ, the text tells us, is in fellowship with the Father. Because he is God, he is in fellowship with the Trinity. The most beautiful of relationships are the relationships, is the relationship that exists between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. When we are saved, we are invited into the fellowship of the Trinity, into this beautiful, loving, perfect, life-giving fellowship with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And so, so Jesus Christ is in fellowship with the Father. The text also says that Jesus Christ is in fellowship with believers because he is a man he is in fellowship with humans, God with us, and Jesus Christ, by virtue of his death, burial, and resurrection, is now in relationship with us as human beings. Thirdly, what has he done? He brings believers into fellowship with the Father. Because he is God and man, he, by virtue of his atoning work, brings sinful man into fellowship with holy God. So he is in fellowship with the Father, he is in fellowship with human beings. He brings human beings into fellowship with the Father. And fourthly, watch this, he brings human beings who believe in him into fellowship with each other. This is what he has done. Because sinful man has been changed and given a new nature, man can now relate to man like the father and son relate to each other. Did you hear that this morning? John 17, again, we're looking at John who has written this epistle. He wrote the gospel. 
to explain salvation. He writes this epistle to explain sanctification, and he writes the book of Revelation to explain glorification. And there is this beautiful passage in John 17, which helps us understand exactly what he's talking about here in these verses when he talks about fellowship, when he talks about fellowship. He says, while I was with them, listen, John 17, verse 12, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I guarded them, and no one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, and for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. He's talking about us here today. That they may all be one. How is that oneness defined? Verse 21, just I lost my place. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one, I, am the, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And those know that you have sent me. I, I, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have, have loved me may be in them and I in them. This is what he's talking about. This is what, this is what he's talking about. He, he saved us so that we could be in fellowship with the Father so that we could be in fellowship with each other. The essence of life, listen to me, as he talks about fellowship, and I want to talk about fellowship for a minute. What is fellowship? The essence of life is relationship. Now, you may say there are a lot of other things. Don't, don't email me and tell me I'm wrong, but let me tell you something. Apart from relationship, some kind of relationship, not, not a single one of us would be here. Life doesn't climb out of a primordial swamp. Life doesn't happen spontaneously. Every single one of us, and I don't care, I don't know what your parents' relationship was like or what, wherever you came from, but I will tell you every one of us is the product of some kind of relationship. Relationship is the essence of life. Without relationship, there is no life. So what is he talking about when he talks about fellowship? First of all, he's talking about relationship. We are essentially relating beings. It is not good for man to be alone. We were created to be in relationship with God and with each other. It's in that relationship now that we narrow the focus and we start talking about Fellowship, fellowship that is unique to the believer, that is a part of what the believer is, is how the believer, listen, is hardwired to act when Christ comes in. Think about it. Because quite frankly, a lot of our relationships smell like the world. A lot of our relationships look like the world. And, and he's saying there is this relationship that should manifest practically fellowship. So what is fellowship then? Fellowship is a sharing of common life. It's experiencing life together on the basis of a common life source. Now, that's, that's important. 
I don't have fellowship with people because they my people. I don't have fellowship with people based on race. I don't have fellowship with people based on geography. I don't have fellowship with people based on the fact that we work in the same place. Right? I don't have fellowship with people because they look like me and we're on the same socioeconomic standing. I don't have fellowship with people because they're married with four kids and 11 grandkids. That's not the basis of our fellowship. The basis of our fellowship is Christ in us. All those other things I just listed, I, I love being with you because I just love how you act or how you behave or how you look. Those are so draining. They pull the life out of us. Those are not, those are not indicators of fellowship. That's manipulation. We, we fellowship because Christ is in us. It is experiencing life together on the basis of a common life source. The reason so many people have difficulty having genuine soul level fellowship is because they don't have Christ in their life. Sharing a common life, experiencing life together on the basis of common life source. Now, I, I want to I just go through three things about, about fellowship and I'll be close to being done. Number one, the presence of fellowship. The presence of fellowship. We can go to creation, we can go to the garden, and we can see Adam, and we can see Eve, and we can see God. All of us as humans are alive because God has breathed his breath into our nostrils. Genesis 2-7. And man became a living soul. Let me tell you something that I know about fellowship. Every single human being, by virtue of the fact that the source of our life is God's breath in us, everyone, every lost person, the worst person, the worst lost person, the meanest person on the face of the planet, he's able to, because the breath of God has been breathed into him. And here's what I want you to understand. Because God created us, he created us with this tremendous hunger and thirst for fellowship and joy. For fellowship and joy. Everybody has a desire for fellowship and joy. Everybody has a desire to be close on a soul level. All human beings are alive today because God breathed life into us. God is the life source of every human being because God is the life source of every single human being. Every single human being desperately needs fellowship and joy. Adam and Eve, Genesis 2.24, for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, cleave unto his wife, and they too shall become one flesh. That's not just a, 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 a commingling of two physical beings. That is a commingling of two spiritual souls. And, and it says in Genesis 2.25 that they were, they were naked and unashamed. What does that mean that there was this closeness? They weren't, they weren't playing games. They weren't wearing a mask. They were transparent. There was a, a closeness in the garden before sin that every one of us longs for, but because of the fall, we can't experience it. In the garden, man experienced this fellowship, and we see in Genesis 2.25, you can read into it, it's there, unconditional love. They were naked and unashamed. There was unconditional acceptance. Eve wasn't having to perform. Adam wasn't having to perform. He wasn't worried that she was going to be mad that he didn't do something. She wasn't worried that she was going to burn the toast. There was just this unconditional acceptance in their fellowship. There was no fear of man. There were no secrets. Everything in their life was safe and life-giving. That was fellowship in the garden, and they walked with God in the cool of the day. They experienced fellowship in the garden at its deepest level between God and between man. But then the fall came. We moved from the presence of fellowship to the absence of fellowship. And we know what happened. Adam and Eve said, God, we don't want to be in fellowship with you. We want to be in fellowship with the world. 1 John 5, 19. We want to be in fellowship with the lust of the eyes, right? We want to be in fellowship with the pride of life. We want to be in fellowship with things that we can touch, with things that we can see, with things that we can control. We want to control our own destiny. We want to make our own choices. God, we don't want to be under your control. And what happened when Adam and Eve sinned and rebelled against God 
fellowship ceased. And before you know it, Genesis 4, Cain and Abel out in the garden trying to figure out how they were going to give an offering to God, and Cain ended up killing his brother Abel. And you can fast forward to Genesis 11, and there's this tower that is being built, and all of the languages are confused. And this is a microcosm of man in, in his fallenness, in his brokenness, in his sinfulness. Fellowship is broken. Life in the absence of fellowship is destructive. Listen, life in the absence of God-ordained, Christ-provided fellowship is destructive. In fact, relationships now are not experiencing fellowship. Relationships in the fall are experiencing disposability. Relationships are disposable. We see the, 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 the highest volume that screams at us of the disposability of relationships in our culture. We see that in, in the abortion industry. This is someone that has been created in the image of God. When they suck that first breath in, they will have the breath of God in them. They have oxygen flowing through their veins that is provided by their birth mother, and they have the breath of God in them. It is the life of God in them, and we, by, by the tens of thousands, are pulling children out of the womb and destroying them. Why? That is the fracturing, the destroying of a relationship. I thank God for the foster care system. It's overtaxed and overloaded. I thank God for those that are willing to get involved in foster children. I thank God for those that are willing to adopt. But at, at, its, at its core, the, the system exists because of the disposability of relationships. Please don't misinterpret what I'm saying about that. We're willing to break fellowship. We're willing to dispose of relationships. We look in the, in the world of intimacy Hookups mean that relationships are meaningless. We reduce life down to the physical. You hear a lot about polygamy and polyamory and affairs all over the place because marriages aren't sustainable because, because relationships are disposable and then people go to the internet and look at things on the screen and use that as a substitute for relationship and fellowship. What a mess we have made of ourselves and our fallenness, and families are divided, and people are angry, and even in church there's gossip and complaining and slander, and our sin has broken our fellowship with God and man, and apart from Jesus Christ, we do not know what to do with relationships except mess them up. God help that believer who says, I'm a believer and Christ has a relationship with me on the basis of the finished work of Christ, but I'm not willing to have a relationship with them because there's something about them I don't like. That's not for a believer. Our fellowship is based on what Christ has done, and when Christ is not there, there's the absence of fellowship. It was broken in the fall. But, but the third thing I want you to see is the recovery of fellowship, and that is found in the gospel the recovery of fellowship. The recovery of fellowship. Now, now, now hear me. I'm gonna, uh, probably going to go off the rails a little bit here. I see us living in four realms. I see us living in a, in a physical realm. I see us living in a body. And most of us think, man, if I, everything's okay in my body, man, if I can go out and run, which I don't know when the last time was that I ran, and I only run if I have to. And I carry a gun so that if I find myself having to run, I may eliminate the reason that I'm having to run. Like a wild animal or a snake or something like that. Okay. Let me, let me be very clear on that. But, but, but so if I run and the endorphins start flowing and I start feeling good, I'm like, oh man, life is great. The endorphins are flowing and everything's happening on a good physical level, right? I feel good. I look good. I go look in the mirror. I'm like, man, you look good. Physically, we, we, that's where we live. It's, it's what Kierkegaard called the aesthetic sphere. We, we live there. We live in this physical realm. If my car looks good, man, if somebody puts a scratch in your car, have you ever felt sick like you're going to throw up because you got a little scr scratch on your new car? Hadn't even got your license plate yet. You still got the dealer tag and somebody scratches your car and you're like, oh, I feel so sick. I thought I would keep this car for 30 years and never get a scratch on it and never get a grain of dirt in the floorboard. We live, we live in the physical realm. We live in the realm of our body. 
But there's not only the physical realm, but there's the, the, the mental or the intellectual realm. We live in our mind, and that's what's happening a lot today. Coronavirus, we're locked in. Everybody's living in their mind. And, and what we do is, is we make, make God a genie in a bottle. If he can make things better in the physical world, then I'm going to be okay. But then we, we intellectually, intellectually, we dive in to just knowing more and more and more and more and more and packing our brains. And we feel like, I'm okay. I know stuff about God. Then there are those that live in the emotional realm. We live in the, we live in the physical realm. We live in the mental realm. We live in the emotional realm. And if I feel, there are folks that would come here today and they, well, I had a lady walk out of church one time, not here, but in another church I pastored. And she leaned over and I thought she was going to say, good, good, good message, preacher. She leaned over and she said, you need a little more wood on your fire. She wanted to feel something. She wanted to feel something. If you didn't, if you didn't stir them emotionally, then God didn't show up. But here's what, here's what I want to tell you. When he talks about fellowship, he's not talking about your body. When he talks about fellowship, he's not talking about your mind. When he talks about fellowship, he's not talking about your emotions. When he talks about fellowship, he's talking about this realm that we really go into, and it's the realm of our soul. It's the deepest part of our being. And he wants us to have this fellowship with the Trinity. That's why when you go to the Psalms and the psalmist in Psalm 42 and in Psalm 63 and in Psalm, uh, in Psalm 103, he talks about the, the soul as my, as my soul pants for you. My soul longs for you. Bless the Lord, oh my soul, I have this soul and my soul is longing. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. There is a part of us that we don't enter into, Jesus said in Matthew 16, 26, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? So our spiritual life is wrapped up in living on a, this is my word, cellular level, living in the realm of our soul. And that's where fellowship is intended to be experienced. Our soul to God. Listen, if you've never had a soul experience where the deepest level of your being is connected to the reality of God through his son, Jesus Christ, and you don't know what I'm talking about this morning. But not only is it this cellular level that we have with God, but there is this cellular level that we operate on with each other. And I want, I want to turn over to, to 1 Samuel and uh, I want to share with you some dialogue between David and Jonathan. And I don't believe David and Jonathan were um, uh, same-sex attracted. Uh, I believe they were just two men whose hearts beat together, whose souls connected. And I believe they are a picture of what our relationship with brothers and sisters in the body of Christ ought to look like. And I believe that when we get past 1 John chapter 1 and verse number 4 and get into verse 5 and 6 and 7 and 8 and 9 and 10, we will begin to understand how we can practically relate in fellowship on a soul level with other believers in Jesus Christ. Listen to, listen to this. Not only us to God, we see that in the Psalms, but in person to person, 1 Samuel 18.1. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him on that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of his robe and put it on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful. What was happening? Something was happening between two human beings in the depth of their soul. 2 Samuel chapter 1, verses 23 to 27 essentially says the same thing, and I won't take the time to read that, but you can check that out, and you can see this fellowship that existed between them. And I want to ask you this morning, have you ever experienced that, that intimacy with God on a cellular level? Have you ever experienced that intimacy with another brother in Christ on a cellular level? in your soul level. And by the way, let me take it a step further. We as shepherds, Hebrews 13, 17, have a responsibility to keep watch over the souls of our people. Right? That's why we want the, the predominant bulk 
of our work practically as pastors to be on a soul level? How are the souls of our people? How are our people doing spiritually? We need to connect on a cellular level. There is this unique and supernatural quality to our relationship that transcends the relationships that the world is able to manufacture. But when the world sees the, these relationships, according to John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, they then understand there's something very unique that is driven by something that is outside of the human realm that is a testimony to the power of the gospel in Jesus Christ. That's what the scriptures tell us. I could go on and describe it and define it, but time will not permit. The final question I want to ask is this. How, how do I live? How do I live? And we'll talk about it as we move forward. But here's, I'll go back to my main theme. Fellowship and joy will be powerful and practical realities in the life of the believer. How do I live? Number one, I should live a life of Christ-exalting fellowship. I should live a life of Christ-exalting fellowship. And I hope this morning I've introduced you to something that is not physical, that is not necessarily predominantly in the intellectual mental realm, that's not in the emotional realm, but that is in a deeper place in all of us than any of that, and that is in our soul. And I hope today that you can see the necessity, if you are ever going to be satisfied, of your soul connecting to God and your soul connecting to the souls of other believers. And uh, I'm... I'm quite sure that that is a very rare thing even here in this body of believers. And I want to challenge you and I want to push you to experience this life with God and life with other believers in this powerful, meaningful, tangible way this morning. This is what we're going to be delving into in First John. Do you have a life of Christ-exalting fellowship and do you have a life of Christ-exalting joy. That's my desire for you today. And have you been transformed by the power of the gospel? The death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Are you depending on that to bring you into right standing with the holy God? Are you depending on that to transform you at the core of your being? And when you do, you then have the capacity to have this fellowship with the Father and to have this fellowship with other brothers in Jesus Christ. And we then have the capacity to be exactly what Christ expects us to be as we go out on mission and welcome other people into our fellowship and our joy. A test. Is there anybody in this room that you don't know? I don't want us to just be a friendly church. I mean, they're friendly at Walmart sometimes. It's not church. There are a lot of businesses you go into, they're friendly. But can I ask you this? Has anybody blessed us with their presence today? Anybody that you don't know, that you want to say, I don't know that person, but if they don't know Jesus, I want them to know Jesus. And if they do know Jesus, I want to be in fellowship with them. That's where you can start. That's where you can start. The people you're hanging out with are people that you hang out with for reasons that maybe are not as deep as fellowship. And I want to challenge you today. Let us be that church that has that fellowship with the Father, with the Trinity, and with the family, with the body this morning. Are you in fellowship with the Trinity? Are you in fellowship with the family? When we take the juice and we take the wafer, just imagine in your mind that you are sitting down at a table and Jesus is sitting across the table. And the question you need to answer is this, am I in my soul, in fellowship with Jesus because we're going to sit down and enjoy this meal together. I, I was, uh, indulge me for just a second. I'll, I'll give you back your time next week. That's not true. Um, this past Friday, I just was feeling kind of blue. Anybody ever feel kind of blue? And I just wanted to, I just wanted to uh, 
eat with somebody that I could just enjoy fellowship with. I did. I just wanted to, I didn't want to talk about any problems. I didn't want to talk about any issues. I didn't want to talk about church. Not that I'm against any of that. I just wanted to have fellowship with somebody. Just straight up, soul to soul fellowship. I wrote, I wrote around this building probably four or five times. And I thought, well, who can I call? Who can I call? And I thought somebody I could call. And then I knew they were busy. I knew they were working and on and on. So I just went over at Love and Oven and sat down and ate some pizza and drank some sweet tea, I want to be clear on that, by myself. And then Michael called me. <laughs> and he said, what, where are you? Because my car was out here. And he came over, and we just had a relaxing time of father and son fellowship. When you take this juice and you take this wafer, it's saying, I am in fellowship with you, Jesus. My soul has been nourished by you. I find my joy in you. And I'm also saying when I take this juice and this wafer that I'm in fellowship with the other people in this body because of what Christ has done. It's, it's, it's a common fellowship based on common life and that common life that we both are drawing from that never runs dry is Jesus Christ. Are you in fellowship with God through his son, Jesus Christ? Are you in fellowship with the brothers and sisters here in this room? And if you are not, I invite you to come into the family and be in fellowship with the Father and with the family. And if you think you're in fellowship with the Father, but there's a broken fellowship with somebody in the family, I would encourage you to make that right before you partake. Jesus said, take and eat, this is my body. And he said, drink ye all of it. Everybody in this room this morning is in desperate need of fellowship and joy. Every single person in this room. Everybody that you run into standing behind the cash register at Ingalls, they're in desperate need of fellowship and joy. And I want to tell you that fellowship and joy are found in Christ and Christ alone. Are you resting in him? Let's pray together. Lord, we ask you to speak to our hearts. We ask you to call those who don't know you to yourself. May they see the emptiness of all of the lies that they've believed and all of the things that they've tried that have not provided fellowship or joy. I pray for those of us who say that we know you, that, Lord, the world would look at how we relate to one another and that they would see our fellowship and that they would see our joy and it would create within them a hunger and a thirst to enter into the life of the Trinity through the family of God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.